0: So Matthew starts the greatest story ever with a long list of names, 46 names of a genealogy. I mean, literally, this is the greatest story ever told. This is the gospel story, the story of Jesus coming to earth, God taking on flesh, the greatest story ever. And he starts it this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, it just seems like a weird way to start a story. If you've ever written anything at all, it's like the first line is so important. The first line will will stop you for a long time. It'll take you a long time to actually get started if you just can't get that first line. And when you start thinking about great stories and great literature and great books and the opening lines of them, those there's memorable opening lines of these stories that kind of grab our attention and drag us into the story very, very quickly. Let me, let me give you some examples of some famous classic literature opening lines. Maybe you can guess where they're from. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive. We're proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Anybody know this one? Harry Potter fans are out here. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. That's how the whole thing starts. Those of you that aren't into witchcraft, we'll move on. <clears throat> Here's a famous first line. All children except one grow up. Anybody? Peter Pan. All children except one grow up. Just one simple line that kind of grabs your attention. What, what's this going to be about? What, what child doesn't grow up? This one's pretty easy, but it's still pretty classic and pretty great. You don't know about me without you have read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, but that ain't no matter. That book was made by Mr. Mark Twain, and he told the truth, mainly. There was things which he stretched, but mainly he told the truth. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens. I'm not sure which one, but classic literature, classic first lines that grab you and usher you into the story this this one may be my favorite there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it anybody know that one true Narnia fans the voyage of the dawn treader you got it And just because I wanted to keep the classic literature going, I thought this one would be good to end it on. The sun did not shine. It was too wet to play. So we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. I sat there with Sally. We sat here, we two, and we said, how we wish we had something to do. The great Dr. Seuss, Cat in the Hat. Opening lines are so important. The way you start a story is, it's crucial, it seems, to the story. And here's Matthew, and he starts the greatest story ever with this big, long list of names, and it makes you ask the question, why? Why start it that way? Why, why open the whole thing, the, the scene, with just a genealogy? And, and part of the problem for us is that we don't see the genealogies the same that, in the same way that Matthew's audience saw them. They, the Jewish people were... They they've paid a lot of attention to genealogy. They traced a lot of things through their genealogy. They, they knew the stories behind the names, and so they, they focused on that. And so we know that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and what he's doing, he's not just writing the Christmas story, you understand, he's writing the gospel story. And what he's doing is he's trying to explain to them that Jesus Christ, this, this Jesus, is the Messiah that we've been waiting for for. for For hundreds and thousands of years, he's the one that was promised to come. And all the Old Testament points to him. And the Old Testament prophets predicted very precisely that he would come, the Messiah would come through a specific lineage. He would come as a descendant of Abraham, obviously, but also a descendant of David. He would be the one to come to reign on David's throne forever. So Matthew starts with the genealogy to trace that line, to make sure that he grabs the attention of the Jewish audience who's wondering, is this this Jesus really the Messiah? Is he the one that was promised? Is he the one that we were told about for centuries by the prophets? And Matthew is basically saying as loudly as he can, yes, he's got the pedigree. He's got the lineage. He's got everything that we were looking for, everything the prophet said. He comes from the line of David. In fact, that's what he says in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so he connects Jesus to David. He connects Jesus to Abraham. But there's got to be more because he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, look, Jesus was born in the line of David and then the line of Abraham and move on to the story. He goes into the details of how he got from Abraham all the way to David, all the way to Christ. And he gives all these different names. And when he starts giving those names, we have to pay attention to that. We have to remember that all scriptures God breathed, all scriptures profitable, even the long list of names that we have a tendency to skip over from time to time, that there's something that God is trying to communicate in the list of the names. And so we look at it and we look at the list, the genealogy, and we try to get a picture of that and we try to say, why does Matthew start this way? And what is God trying to say to us? What is God trying to teach us when we look at these names? And the first thing I think that we can say about all the genealogies, but, but very specifically about this one, is that God works through history. What Matthew seems to be trying to communicate to us is that God is with us, that he's with us through, through all the generations, and we're going to list off these generations from Abraham all the way to Christ. But the way that we know that God is with us is when we know that God is at work to say that God is with us is maybe just a feeling. I, I feel that God is with me, or it's just a truth that we kind of grab a hold of and we wanna hold on tightly to, but how do you know God is with us? Well, you see the evidence of his work in our lives. You see the evidence of his work in history. And so how do you know that God is with us through all these generations? That you see constantly God is at work in history to accomplish his purposes. So when you look at this list, you see all these different names, but, but what it's doing is it's pointing us and it's leading us to this day that Christ is gonna be born of this lineage, of, this, of these descendants, so that we know that God was accomplishing what God said he was going to accomplish. It's the evidence of God at work, and that helps us understand, hold fast to the truth that God is with us. If you skip all the way down to verse 17, when he gets to the end of the list, he. He sums it up this way. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, just something, I guess, kind of trivial, kind of interesting for you is that it wasn't exactly 14 generations it's just how matthew presented it he's he, if you follow through the genealogies in the old testament and compare them to this there's sometimes he skips over some people but he's he's kind of giving us a picture of these 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to Babylon and 14 generations from Babylon to the Christ. And so when he does that and he, he brings that symmetry into it, you go, well, what's, what's going on there? And it kind of lends, lends, lends to us thinking about this history and these eras of Israel's history. And what it seems like Matthew's trying to communicate is that God was at work in every single era of history, in every single age, in every single season God was at work. It may look different. It it, it obviously feels different, but but God was at work to accomplish his purposes. Nothing ever thwarted it. Nothing ever got it off track. No matter what happened in the stories of these people, it just stayed right on course. And so you have this Abraham to David when God was forming Israel into a nation. And we've just spent a lot of time studying that in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah and all that. And you have God forming Israel into a nation. He's very, very clearly involved. He's, he's talking to Abraham. He's talking to Isaac. He's, he's leading them. He's guiding them. We've talked about his providence as we studied through these stories in Genesis. And we see how he's orchestrating everything. Even Joseph's time in Egypt was God's plan all along. So you see the evidence that God is at work. And you know that he's with us because he's at work. And then David becomes this, this king and From David to Babylon, these 14 generations kind of symbolize this time when God was at work and he was reigning through the kings of Israel. He had established Israel as a kingdom and he was fighting battles for them and he was defending them and he was helping them to establish who they were and the worship of him amongst all these other nations who worshiped idols. And God is reigning through his kings and he's leading his people From David all the way to Babylon. The people weren't always obedient, but there's evidence that God is at work in every era of history. And He's at work as David and Solomon and all these kings begin to reign. You see it mostly in the prophets who were proclaiming the word from God, proclaiming the news from God, standing up and speaking the words of God to the people. God was at work, so God was with them in that era and that through those generations. And then Babylon to Christ, they're in exile. And then after exile, they finally come back to Israel, and then God, God goes silent. No prophets, 400 years, no word from the Lord. But the truth is the Bible tells us that God was at work, that God was still setting up the stage for Jesus to come. The silence was meant to create that longing for a Messiah to come and deliver us. But even in, even in exile, God had already promised them that this wasn't the end. He had promised them they would be Defeated and they would be taken away in exile, but he promised that he had a plan for them that wasn't for their calamity or their destruction, but their, his plan was for their hope and a future. Through Jeremiah, he promised that he would bring them back and establish Israel again. And so God was at work to accomplish his purposes in every era of history. And the evidence that he's at work reminds us that he's with us. And that's good news for us because it reminds us that in this era of history, in this day and age, in this culture that we live in, and all the things that are going crazy in our world today, that God is at work, that God is with us. And sometimes we have to stop, we have to look hard for the evidence that he's at work because it's very easy to get distracted, it's very easy to take our eyes off that, it's very easy to start thinking that our hope is in something other than God at work in this era of history. We're about to go into a new year, in 2020, and... The fun that we have of an election year, so much joy. And it's very easy to get distracted and think that our hope is in this next election, our hope is in the next politics, our hope is in the next policy, and our hope is never never in that. We should be faithful and committed citizens, but our hope has to be in God. Our hope has to be that he's in control and he's at work in every era of history, including this one. And these generations, these genealogies of these generations kind of remind us that God works through history. But as we go a little bit deeper into this, we see that God works through families. This is such a biblical truth that's become one of our values at Crosspoint family discipleship, that families passing faith onto their children, that this God working through families, all these different names, these begats, these. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. This is designed in the Bible for fathers to pass faith along to their children. We studied this in Genesis chapter 12. In fact, we took a couple weeks to really talk about this. In verse 3 of Genesis chapter 12, God makes this promise to Abraham. And we spent a lot of time there because it's really kind of the beginning of God's covenant with his people, and it really fleshes out in the gospel, and it was a very important passage. In verse 3... God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That word families, it can be translated a lot of different ways. And we kind of focused when we went through here on the fact that it can be translated tribe or people group or nation, ethnic group. Because we understand the big picture of the Bible is that God was going to bless this nation, Israel, that he was making from Abraham and through them, to bless all the nations on the, on the planet. He's, God is the God for all peoples, every nation, tribe, and tongue. But the f- foundational word there is literally translated families because that's what it means. The essence of that word is a family unit. Remember, he's saying this to Abraham. He was actually called Abram at the time. He didn't have children, couldn't have children. He says, I'm gonna make you a family and I'm gonna bless your family. And then in you, all the other families on the earth are going to be blessed. Big picture is nations, every nation, tribe, and tongue. But the the specifics of that promise is God works through families. God blesses families. And so we believe that the Bible teaches that so clearly on almost every page that families are the primary place for discipleship. The discipleship happens first and foremost in the home, that the church is here to resource, the church is here to equip, the church is here to train, church is here to assist, church is here to come alongside you, but as as families, we want you to pass faith along to your children. The Bible says it in multiple places, Deuteronomy 6, where it talks about teaching your children the ways of God, talking about it all the time. Psalm 145, one generation will pass your works to another generation. There's a there's A verse in Psalm 78, which that whole Psalm is really talking about passing faith along to the next generation, verses 5 through 7 are kind of a snapshot of it. He established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. That fathers teach their children. Parents pass faith to their children. Even the children unborn, yet, so grandparents are involved in this whole process that families passing faith along to their children. Why? So that our children will set their hope in God. They won't hope in anything other than that. They will not hope in anything less than that. They will set their hope in God and they will not forget the works of God. And so as families, we have to be intentional. We have to be diligent. We have to take initiative. We have to say, this is my responsibility. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to pass faith along to my children. I'm going to make sure they know the works, the wonders, the greatness of God so that they will put their hope in him and not forget him. And the Bible teaches that so clearly over and over and over to us. And it's Advent. And God's... Advent is just this unique, special time, this Christmas season, this holiday season where you get a chance to point your kids to the greatest truth ever. You get a chance during Advent to point your kids to this amazing, amazing story of God being born as a baby in order to rescue us and save us. So let me just challenge you. Let me just encourage you. Don't miss this opportunity. You, you for the last 11 months, maybe you've done nothing. Man, it's so easy. I'm, I'm, I'm probably in that category more often than I want to admit. The, the, the world gets busy, we get distracted, we get crazy, and we just don't have time where we're all just, I'm just miss intentional time all the time. And then Advent rolls along and I'm like, oh man, there's so many resources, there's so much stuff, I want to slow down, I want to stop this thing. I want to I focus my kids' hearts and their attention on the greatness of the story. Don't miss it. You got just a few weeks here to point them towards that. The, the, the favorite for many, many years in our family is the Jotham's Journey story. There's actually four different books in that, that story, and, and, and you can read through that every single night. Your kids will, it'll grab them and bring them into that story. If you have grade school kids, this is prime time for Jotham's journey, Bartholomew's passage, all those books, and it just tells this fictional story that kind of weaves into the story of the birth of Christ. It's fantastic, but there's all kinds of resources. There's devotions. We've got one that we're recommending this year. We've recommended one, seems like, every single year. All these different ways that you can capture this season and capture everything that's about and really be intentional with your kids, be intentional in passing faith along to your families. Now, if you look at this list of names and you know anything about it at all, you know that some of these fathers didn't pass faith along at all. You have this guy named Ahaz in here. Man, he, he was a wicked king. He, he, he led the people into idolatry in a way that most of the kings never even thought of. He wasn't giving faith to the next generation, but then all of a sudden, his son Hezekiah takes the throne and Hezekiah turns the people of God back to God, their hearts back to God. And it's just a reminder that some of you were not passed faith down by your parents. Some of you never had a family devotion when you were growing up. Some of you never heard these truths from your parents and you don't even know what that looks like. And it's just a reminder that it's never too late. There's There's no missed opportunities here. You get to start all over because of God's grace and you get to share and pass faith along to your children and the children that are in your life. You get to start a new legacy, a new path, a new tradition. And the Advent season gives you an awesome opportunity to do that. That there's always God's grace for the next generation. There's always a new start. There's always a new beginning. That in Christ we are a new creation. And so you got a new chance for that. Don't miss the opportunity that the next few weeks present. To turn your family's hearts to the greatest story ever. And then as you continue to go into the details of this genealogy, I think that you see this, that God works through all of us. There's individual names here because God is at work in each and every person in the story. What? Why? To accomplish his purpose, to bring about the Messiah through this line, through this this ancestry. God is at work through all these people, good, bad, ugly. He's at work in spite of their stories because he's accomplishing his purposes. And that's one of the fundamental problems for us is we don't understand these names. We don't know these names. But the people that Matthew were writing, was writing to, like they knew the names. And when they heard the names, they heard the story. It's like it. it brought up a story behind them. And sometimes we just are not that familiar. I'm like, we got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because we spent a lot of time on them. But then you start getting into Zadok and stuff, and we're like, I I don't even know why anybody would name their kid Zadok. We don't know the stories. But here's here's what you can compare it to. Since we're here in Rockwall, Texas, in the home of the Republic, most of you are Texans, and the rest of you figured out where the promised land is today. And if I started mentioning heroes of Texas history, I started saying Sam Houston, Davy Crockett, William Travis, James Bowie, James Bonham, Roger Staubach, Harvey Martin, Randy White, Tutal Jones. It kind of seems like these days that those people all lived in the same time period right now. It's been a long time since the Cowboys were that good. But when I mentioned those names. You know the story. If, I mean, if you're a Texan, you know the story. I was, Dove and I were recently in Washington DC, uh, hanging out and we got to go on a tour of the Capitol and this uh, young lady took us on a tour and she was, from, she was from the North, she was from Oklahoma. And she went through this hall where they have all these statues and she said, and just one of the statues from Texas, it's Sam Houston. And she looked at me, and she goes, I don't really know who that is. And so we left. We just left the tour. (laughs) I just looked at her and I said, you don't know? What? How do you not own Sam Houston? He's the George Washington of Texas. And she goes, oh, okay. It's like, when she said Sam Houston, I knew the story. When Matthew's walking through these names, people know the story. The people that he's writing to hear those names and they know the story behind it. And what it does is it points them to the fact that God's at work in all these people, in spite of these people. He's at work in Ahaz, as wicked as he was. He's in the line, pointing us to Jesus. God's at work in all of us, and he's at work in in spite of us. And maybe, maybe that's never more clear than in the fact that there's some women that are mentioned in this story in this list of genealogy. You understand in that day and time, that wasn't really part of the practice. That wasn't, you, just, you kind of trace the genealogy from father to son to father to son to father to son. But Matthew inserts some women into the story, some little highlights. If you were highlighting something, you would just kind of highlight those names along the way because they're telling us something very interesting and specific. If, they, if he puts a woman's name in this story in that day and time, in that culture, it's, it's trying to communicate something. And so the first woman that you see mentioned here is a woman named Tamar. She's, her is in Genesis chapter 38. We skipped that story when we were preaching through Genesis for obvious reasons. We skipped it because in our context, that story is not what you would call safe and fun for the whole family. You can read it at your own risk later. That story, if you do read it, and you have like that anxiety that comes with the holidays when you have to get together with extended family and it's awkward and weird, that story will make you feel better about your family. I promise it will. It was messed up. And she's right here in the lineage of the Messiah. As messed up as that family was, as messed up as those people in that story, Judah and Tamar and all, here she is tracing right back directly from Jesus to her. The next woman mentioned is Rahab. We did talk about her. She helped the spies. She covered them up. She's mentioned in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 because of her great faith in God. But she was a Canaanite. She was an outcast. She was also a prostitute. Lots of reasons why you would exclude her in this. She believed God and was brought in to the story and became a part of the ancestry of Jesus. Tamar and Rahab kind of make you go, what in the world's going on with these women? And then you get to Ruth and you're like, oh good, finally, Ruth. We love Ruth. So faithful. Decided to stay with her mother-in-law. that's a great story, of the kinsman redeemer with Boaz. All that stuff is a great story. But before that all happened, we need to remember that Ruth was a Moabite. Do a quick search on your own for the people of Israel and the Moabites. Man, they did not like each other. There was always conflict between Israel and the Moabites. They were, they were considered a cursed people. And Ruth from Moab, she's a Moabite. And here she is, brought in because of Boaz, into the family of God, into the lineage of Jesus, so much so that she's the great-grandmother of David, King David. An outcast, an outsider, a Gentile, not of the people of God, cursed, cut off, and now brought in to the family, directly related to Jesus. She's not mentioned by name, but... Her story's mentioned in the genealogy, and that's Bathsheba. It just talks about Solomon was born to David by the wife of Uriah, who was dead. And you remember that story, adultery, murder, shame. And then there she is. And there's Solomon. Of all the kids that David could have had, being the line to Jesus, it was Solomon from Bathsheba. And these women in this story, they tell us so much, but ultimately what they tell us is that there is hope for all of us. That God works through all of us. That there is a place for all of us in God's family. If, if you walk through and list these people out and, and, and look at their stories and make some notes about it, and, and you'll just see this picture of all this dysfunction and all this trouble and all this chaos... Some evilness. And you these are the people that made it into the descendants of Jesus. They're, They're in his ancestry line. And then you go, then surely there's a place for me on the other side of this thing. Surely there's a place for me on the other side as a child of the king, as a son and daughter of God. Why? Because of what Jesus did. The hope for us is not in the lineage. It's not in the genealogy. The hope for us is in the last name on the list. This is just a list of names and a lot of dysfunction and a lot of crazy stories until you get to the end and there's Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah who was to come, who died on a cross for us. Was born as a baby, yes, but that was all so that he could come and take our place and die on a cross and give us this forgiveness and give us this right that we could never earn or deserve to become the children of God and be brought in and grafted into the family. There's a place for every single one of us. It doesn't matter your backstory, it doesn't matter your baggage, it doesn't matter your dysfunction, it doesn't matter how messed up your family is, it doesn't matter how messed up you are. There is a place for you because of Jesus, because of his grace in the family of God. For every single one of us, there's a place. And in Advent, we're reminded of that. In Advent, we're reminded that Jesus came to rescue his dysfunctional family and Jesus has come to rescue all of our dysfunctional families Jesus came to rescue all these messed up people and Jesus came to rescue all of us messed up people and he gives us hope we celebrate that together because of him let's pray God thank you for the truth of your word Thank you for the reminders of your grace and your work, that you are with us, and that evidence is in every single season and era of history. That evidence is in every family, and that evidence is in every person in this room. No matter how we feel, no matter how far we've gone away, that you've provided a path back. And you've brought us back because of Jesus. So that there's place for every single one of us in your family. And we praise you and worship you today because of that hope. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.